Hello, everyone, and welcome home to the Constellations Program Notes podcast, where we never stop exploring the connections that make life and music meaningful. I'm Ellen Huangbo, Artistic Director of Constellations Chamber Concerts, and I'm back to take you through the amazing musical journey of our next virtual concert on March 21st called Roots. The idea for this concert began with thinking of those who have often been the most vulnerable and isolated during this pandemic, our dear mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and friends in the senior community. The last year has taken a tremendous toll on so many families, and particularly when it comes to the loss of the elders who have had such a rich presence in our lives. The reason home, our season theme, is such a formative place is not really the creature comforts we enjoy, but the people from past generations that influence us and shape our upbringing in ways we often realize only in hindsight. As musicians, we are shaped by a very similar process as we hone our skills, practicing our craft under the careful guidance of teachers who we often depend on like musical parents. And the same is certainly true of composers as well, whose writing draws on all kinds of influences from music that came before, transforming those seas into something unique and personal through the compositional process. This is the case whether we intend it or not. All of us have mentors and role models that we try to emulate, but we can never become a carbon copy no matter how much we admire someone. On the flip side, even trying hard not to be like someone or something we dislike can shape us in very stark ways. To explore this concept on our concert, we are taking the music of Johann Sebastian Bach as our musical root. Bach is a perfect example of this because it's hard to imagine a more influential composer even hundreds of years after he lived and died. Of course, there were important composers in the classical tradition well before Bach and after, but Bach was in many ways the first to deliver the whole package, melody, harmony, rhythm, incredible intricate music combined with heartfelt emotion that we can easily relate to today. In particular, we'll be exploring the influence of Bach's works for solo strings, his famous six sonatas and partitas for violin, and six suites for cello. Despite being neglected for many years after Bach's death, these pieces were rediscovered and became centerpieces of the classical repertoire. At this point, they've taken an almost mythical significance for string players viewed as the pinnacle of solo works for those instruments. They explored aspects of string technique and sound that were visionary at the time and have been a tremendous source of inspiration for later generations of composers. For Sunday's concert, we are starting one step removed from Bach's originals with performances of selections from Bach's C major cello suite played by Eric Heckscher, bassoonist in the National Philharmonic, and selections from the G minor violin sonata played by still pianist Andy Akiho. 
these two performances highlight something really special about Bach's music, how adaptable it is for so many different instruments. The core of each piece, voicing harmony rhythm, seems to sound gorgeous no matter which instrument you play them with. Both sets of six pieces, the originals for violin and cello, were written around the same time while Bach was working as a court musician for a prince in Kuiten. During this period, Bach was largely freed from duties to write sacred music for the church and had access to several notable virtuosos in the court orchestra who may have given the original premieres of these works. All 12 solo works are remarkable in the way they weave multiple musical lines, called counterpoint, out of just a single instrument, which is part of what makes these pieces so fascinating to performers and audiences alike. We'll also be joined by Nurit Bar-Joseph, concertmaster of the National Symphony Orchestra, who also happens to be Eric's wife, for performances of two solo violin works that trace their lineage directly back to Bach. First will be two movements from Eugene Isai's Sonata No. 2, nicknamed the Obsession, to reflect Isai's own obsession with the Bach sonatas and partitas. Isai was one of the greatest violinists of the late 19th and early 20th century. He was nicknamed King of the Violin by his colleagues. In a nod to Bach, Isai wrote six solo sonatas that have become part of the standard repertoire for violinists. The Bach inspiration is made obvious by direct quotes from Bach's third partita in the opening of the sonata, but the second and fourth movements we'll be hearing are a little bit more subtle. The second, called Melanconia, is directly inspired by the Siciliano slow dance style used in many of Bach's solo works, but mixes it with the Dies Irae, a Gregorian chant that evokes the Day of Wrath as part of the Catholic Requiem Mass. The fourth movement, Le Fuhri, returns to the Dies Irae theme while invoking the goddesses of vengeance from Greek mythology through fierce and dramatic violin flourishes. Isai is able to combine his own highly virtuosic style with his love and respect for Bach's original, and also fill it with allusions to even older themes from medieval requiems and ancient Greece. Next, Nurit will bring us to the modern day with Jesse Montgomery's Rhapsody No. 1, conceived as the first of a set of six pieces inspired both by Bach's sonatas and partitas and Isaiah's own six sonatas. In a way, you could say this piece is the grandchild of Bach's violin works with its influence filtered through multiple generations and expressed through a contemporary harmonic style. 
This piece was written for the composer herself to play and has earned a place in many violinists' repertoire for its gorgeous textures and soulful melodies. I had a chance to sit down with my colleague and friend, Ian Rosenbaum, to chat about the last piece on the program, Andy Hakio's 21. Let me share our conversation with you. So I'm really excited to talk about Andy Akio's work on this program called 21, not just because it's an incredible piece of music, but also because one of our one of the performers is our very own Ian Rosenbaum, a member of our programming committee. And Ian is joining us right now to talk about this piece and give us some inside scoops. So welcome, Ian. Thank you so much. All right. So just to be clear, uh, just to clear one thing up right away, even though we're performing this piece on March 21, 2021, the piece wasn't actually commissioned by Constellations. What does this title of this piece actually refers to? That, that, that's hilarious. I, <laughs> I had thought about how the date in, in March, what of course matches the title, but I hadn't thought about the year yet. So yeah. like, it really feels like this piece was, was written for this concert, but it wasn't. <laughs> the piece was written a, a while back. Um, actually don't have the year on hand, but it's one of Andy's earlier pieces. Um, and it's inspired um, by the 21st measure mm-hmm. of Bach's violin fugue in G minor. Um, Andy was actually playing a steel drum arrangement of this piece. I think he's actually going to feature a few movements from from that violin sonata on this concert as well. And when he was practicing, he likes likes to sometimes do this thing that many of us do, where they'll take a particularly hard section and just sort of loop it over and over and over again until until it really works. Mm -hmm. And the 21st measure of this piece features these sort of block chords, like these three-note chords that kind of move in in eighth notes. Um, It's kind of a striking moment in the piece because th- there's lots of 16th notes and all kinds of running notes all over the place. But then right in this one bar, there's these chords. I can't remember exactly now, but for some particular reason, it was it was difficult to play these chords on the steel drum. So he was repeating the chords over and over. And then after a few minutes of doing that, instead of just playing the chords as, uh, as vertically stacked uh, groups of notes, he arpeggiated them. He sort of split the chords up into 16th notes and just played the notes that way. And that formed the basis for for this entire piece. So you'll hear the piece begins uh, with this sort of ostinato, but right after that, when the steel drum comes in playing these 16th notes, that is the the 21 chords that, that he arpeggiated in that practice session. And he made the entire piece just from that one measure. Yeah, I mean, after that, I mean, if he was here, he could probably tell you 20 other ways that it connects to the Bach piece. But after that, in my opinion, it spins out into totally Andy land, like it's not following the Bach perfectly in any other way. Uh, But he was inspired just by that measure and just by the act of practicing that piece over and over and over again. 
amazing. I can't wait to share this piece with everyone. Um, so, you know, this is going to be the third time a work of Andy's has been performed on our concert series. And hey, that beats Beethoven. And he's right <laughs> up there with J.S. Bach. You know, the first time was our very first um, house concert program in November 2019 with Kara Kurenai. And then from Sandbox's performance of Pillar 2 on one of our virtual concerts in summer of 2020. And actually, I think when I met you was summer of 2011 when you played Ligneus for Marimba. Oh, right. And String, Yellow Barn. Yeah, String Quartet by Andy. And I think Andy visited us that summer and played a bunch of his other pieces. And you introduced to uh, all of us to Andy Land. And so I know that you and Andy have collaborated a long time. Your friendship goes uh, you know, long time back. Can you tell us a little about Andy and your journey with him so far? Yeah, yeah, man, that that's so funny that you bring that up. He definitely did visit us back back in I think it was 2011. Yeah, um, and I remember that we convinced uh, Seth Knopp to let me and Andy, I think Tessa Lark as well, to give like this little impromptu concert in, in the in the main building where we played a whole bunch of this stuff. Yeah. So I met Andy uh, when we were in grad school together at Yale. Um, I, I, I remember that we had a class together and I just remember this guy coming up to me. He handed me a business card. He's like, hey, man, my name's Andy. I play the steel drum. I write a lot of stuff. It's really cool. Um, I'm playing tomorrow night at the sushi restaurant. You oh, my gosh. And I was like, what? Like, who is this person? Like, that that, 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 that was kind of intense. Um, and I feel like at that moment, I thought I had an idea of what the steel drum did. You know, I had seen people play it on the subway, maybe seen a few videos. And I, I, I thought end. I had it. Right. right, 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 right. And I thought that that was the only thing it could do. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know that much about it. Um, but Andy was actually dating a friend of mine at the time. And she wanted to go to the concert at the sushi place. So I went with her. Um, and, and I got to see him play and he would organize these concerts like ev every few weeks where he would just grab a bunch of people from the department um, and he would rearrange his pieces for whoever he had. If he had a harp player, he would add a harp part. If he had a cello player, there'd be a cello, but whatever it happened to be. And he would make the, these beautiful li little concerts playing some of his earliest pieces, the, the, these pieces like Kara Koronai, that, that was one of them that all started as steel drum solos. And that he then adapted to fit, again, whatever orchestration, whatever group of people happened to be playing with him. And after watching him play for a minute, I, I, my, my jaw was just on the floor. I mean, he, he's one of those performers who completely redefines, like, what is possible on this instrument. Like, I, I mean, I, I compare him to people like Be Bella Fleck with the banjo or Chris Dealey with, with the mandolin. People who take these instruments, again, where you think you know what someone can do on them, and then they redefine what is possible. And he is that for the steel drum. So um, he, he, is, uh, he studied both the traditional aspect of that instrument. He spent a lot of time in Trinidad, where the instrument was, was built. And then he sort of came back and started to try to make it his own. And he's been writing this classical work for the instrument for, for years now. Um, and put it in these contexts with string quartets, with orchestras, with, with all kinds of different groups uh, that, that it has never been, been before. 
so after I saw him play this concert, I went up to him and I was like, man, that was incredible. And I, I knew that we, we had to work together. So I just sort of started trying to figure out ways to put us in the same room and, and just figure out how to work together. I think the first time that I played one of his pieces was kind of an accident. Like, you know, he wrote a piece for, for the Contemporary Music Ensemble at Yale. Um, I don't think I was even assigned to play it, so so I didn't. But the other percussionist who was assigned to play it uh, had to drop out because he had a conflict like a week before the concert and he asked me to do it. I think I remember not wanting to, like I was too busy or some, something like that, but, but I ended up doing it. It was this piece called No, no One to No One, uh, which is on Andy's first album, an amazing, amazing chamber piece. And uh, it has a, a big part that, that, that I played and loved playing. No one to So after we got to meet each other through that experience, I think he could see that I was really enthusiastic about his work. I could see that he was enthusiastic about mine. And then it just sort of went from there. So um, I recorded a lot of the percussion parts on his first CD. He wrote Ligneous, like you were talking about, a piece with string quartet that I started to play all the time while we were still at school. And we've just sort of tried to create ways for for us to, to work together as much as possible since then, in the decades since then. Well, we can't wait to hear what will come later in the future because it's just been amazing, you know, collaboration for both of you. And um, so this piece, the 21, how do you describe his compositional style? Is it like, does it fit the mold of his like typical sort of writing style or is there anything unusual about this piece? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it does both those things. So it, it fits the mold in that in in many of Andy's works, he uses rhythmic elements as the sort of expressive jumping off point. So so in the same way that I would say Bach uses harmony as the expressive point, you know, the, the, the speed at which the harmonies change and what the harmonies are is really what drives the piece forward. For Andy, it's rhythm. Um, th- there's not a lot of rubato in Andy's music because he kind of writes it in. He's so specific about when things happen and the different feeling that a rhythm gives you, whether it's a group of 16th notes or triplets or quintuplets or whatever it happens to be and what what that makes you feel like. In the case of this piece, um, in addition to being based on that 21st measure of the Bach piece, it's it's also based on this ostinato that you'll hear me play right at the beginning of the piece that sort of consists of... um, uh, let, let me think about it for a second. It's three quarter notes in a row and then five dotted eighth notes. So three longer notes followed by five slightly shorter notes. And uh, if you add up the number of 16th notes, the number of small beats that make up that little melody, it's an odd number. So every time you loop that melody on itself, you're starting on a different part of the beat. So the first time I play it, it starts right on the downbeat. The second time it starts one 16th note earlier, then one 16th note earlier than that, one more 16th note earlier than that, until finally after four times through, we get back to the downbeat. But right when you hear it in the beginning, 
it almost feels like it's in some regular meter four four or some, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then Andy will come in right after me playing quarter notes on top of that. And then you suddenly feel, oh my God, I have no idea where the beat is. <laughs> and I think that that is something that he plays around with a lot, like putting something out there, like here's where you should be tapping your foot. No, 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 actually here's where you should be tapping your foot. You know, he sort of creates this expectation and then turns it on set. How, so how do you, like you said, you know, I love that his music is so accessible to the listener, but also virtuosic for the performers. And we really have to be focused or else, you know, we're off for, you know, good, good, you know, half the piece. And so how do you go about practicing? And like, what do you think about when you're performing a piece of Andy's? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... He, he talks a lot about his experiences, both in the steel drum world, when he was playing in these steel bands, which are like, you know, a group of 100 people gathered together in a parking lot or something playing the loudest music I've ever heard in my life, or also in, in drum, drum lines. So he spent a lot of time in marching bands when he was younger as well. Um, and the way that those groups sort of learn pieces and put, put pieces together in the ensemble is to, uh, well, A, to learn by rote. Many people in those communities, n- not that they don't read scores, but they just don't choose to in that moment. They choose to learn them together. Someone will yell out what the next few notes are. Everyone will learn them and sort of play them together. And that's how they learn wow. an entire a 20-minute long piece, just note by note by note by note. Um, and so he, he talks a lot about learning by rote and just sort of uh, being there in the rehearsal and playing uh, over and over and over and over again, but not talking like, oh, you're rushing, you're slowing down. Can you cue me there? It's none of that. It's just playing and playing and playing. And so when when we rehearse together, it's a lot of that. We just play for an hour or two and don't really talk about what we're doing and just try to fix things and make them better as, as we're going. So I think that for much of his music, uh, I'm not reading a score. I, I've tried to learn it in, in this way uh, so that it really... Um, I don't know, it becomes ingrained in your body. Like there's no other note that could come after the previous note because you've played it so many times like that. And it's kind of a, an experience that I've tried to apply to other things. Like it certainly doesn't only apply to, to his music. It's just the way that, that he does things. Um, and it, this is also born out of like, he, I mean, he obviously reads scores, but I, he, he would be the first to admit that he's not like an amazing sight reader. You know, he's not one, one of those players. So when he's learning pieces, he prefers to, to do it this way just for himself too. And that's sort of worked his way in, in, into his writing. Um, so I, I don't know if that, if that answers your, yeah, your, yeah, your yeah. question, but that, that's sort of the, the influence of it you really feel it and becomes part of you, like yeah. instinctive, you know, gesture or action. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, and in the case of this piece, I mean, it's a piece, Andy has been playing it longer than me, but I've been playing it for a really long time too. It also exists in a bunch of different for, for, formats, di- different groups of instruments. So we both played it a million times. Actually, I've played both of the two parts of the duo, kind of depending on which version we're doing. So in this case, I know the piece really, really, really well. And that's fun because every time the two of us play it together, uh, we're able to change things or add things, add a section here, take a section away here, just continually making it more challenging for, for us. That was going to be my question. You know, next question was that this piece it looked like it was originally written for cello and steel pen, but then I saw that you performed the version for cello and marimba, and this yes. Sunday we're going to be hearing a version for steel drum and marimba, right? 
Yes. So is this a brand new version of the piece or, you know, has it existed before? And can you tell me how he put this arrangement together? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the original version was uh, Steel Drum and Cello, like, like you said. So he wrote that for himself um, and played that, that one a lot. Uh, I think he realized at some point that not too many folks played the steel drum, certainly not like him. Mm-hmm. So he made an arrangement for, for, for other drummers to play it on, on a keyboard instrument, right, if they didn't happen to, to play the steel drum. So I played that version a lot with a cellist. Uh, so at that point, Andy and I both knew the, the same part, so we couldn't really play it as a duo. Um, <laughs> then the two of us started playing concerts together as, as a duo, and we were trying to think of other pieces that we might be able to play. We talked about this piece, um, and then we had a quick conversation. We are like, okay, who's going to learn the cello part? And Andy basically was like, you're going to learn the cello part. <laughs> At that point, uh, we t- together, we, we, we made an arrangement. It's not brand new. I think we, we premiered it a few years ago. Um, but we, we worked together on sort of translating the cello part to, to, to make it work on, on my instrument. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that the changes are, are that, that big. I mean, one, one important thing is that the cellist has to play a kick drum while they're playing the cello, which is quite a challenging thing for a cellist to do. And many of the cellists that we played it with have killed this. It's been an amazing thing. Um, but that's always, I would say, one of the most challenging parts for a cellist to do, of course, because right. it's not an instrument that, that they've played. So when we did this arrangement, we're able to sort of, um, I don't know, embellish that part a little bit because the two of us are obviously very comfortable with with playing with our feet in in that way. Wow. Well, I am sure it's going to be an extremely memorable performance and, you know, not to be missed. And I want to end up uh, end by thanking you specifically for making time for this podcast. I know you've been incredibly, incredibly busy these last few months with your own ensemble sandbox. Um, What's coming up for sandbox for some of our fans here? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it seems like uh, I'm just just talking about the same stuff. But but uh, we're we're in the middle of a big project with Andy right right now. So over the past several years, he's been writing a huge piece. Actually, that uh, Pillar Two, which we played on our concert several months ago, is a part of. It's this piece called Seven Pillars. When it's finished, it's going to be a full evening, uh, about about seventy five minutes long. It consists of seven quartets as the seven pillars from the title uh, and four solos one solo for each person in the ensemble and this is a piece that actually has its roots like eight years ago andy was commissioned to write a piece called pillar four which ends up being the centerpiece of the whole evening um, but when he was writing that piece he was telling me he's like man you know that the commission is just for 10 minutes but i have all of these ideas I, i've been improvising i've been making these videos of myself playing i, I think i have a full hour-long piece in here even back then and he called the piece pillar four because in his mind it was going to be the center of this structure even though he hadn't written it all it's not it didn't start from pillar one two three wow the exact middle right right from the beginning yeah yeah and you know it took sandbox years to get the infrastructure to be able to commission something like this and and to put something like like this together uh, we were actually supposed to give the world premiere of, of, of the live performance of it back in April. That was canceled with the pandemic. And when that happened and we realized that it was going to be a while until we could give the, you know, the live performance that we really wanted to for this kind of project that had spent that, that we had spent so, so long developing with Andy, we decided to record the piece. So we've been making an album of this piece uh, since then, and we're going to release that with some video of, of us playing that piece that's coming 
in the middle of December. We, we we're, we're angling in on a, on, on a date now that there's a, there's a lot of moving parts, but we're nearing the end of that project. Stay tuned for that. And thank you again, Ian, so much. We can't wait to see you this Sunday. Um, everyone, come back to say hello to Ian at our Zoom lobby. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Thank you. You can join us at our online home at www.constellationsmusic.org on Sunday, March 21st at 3 p.m. Eastern Time to catch the concert and join for a Zoom reception with the artists, including Ian. As always, if you can't make it right at 3 p.m., you can catch a replay of the concert for 72 hours, but the chance to meet the artists over Zoom is a one-time event, so don't miss it and see you this Sunday. Bye-bye.